Do you ever think of what is as obvious to you as like the earth being flat or 3 plus 3 being 6 or I don't know what else? <laughs> Maybe, maybe a lot more things need to be obvious to you first for something else to be there for comparison. Okay, smartest, now let's actually welcome people that are here for the real story, the real deal. I'm in the presence of greatness yet again. You look lost, you, you, you're like probably spooked away by that little bit that I have at the beginning of the video. Don't worry, the rest of it is gonna be grim. You have been found if you are into true crime, if you're into exposés of the issues that nobody is talking about, if you're into weird Southern Eastern European accents, here it is. Here it is. You are at the right place. Make sure once you obviously watch all of the content that you like and subscribe. I don't make people do it before. No, no, no. I'd never make you do it before. I need you to actually see my work and then I pull you in and you want more. You see, this is how it's done. Wow, really? Says the person with like, what, 100 something subscribers? Okay, shut. So, we're moving on to the serious part of the video now and trigger warning today's video is basically the whole of it is just going to be about modern slavery. Now I'm not just gonna talk facts at you, I will start by describing modern slavery and in particular what part are we focusing on today. So let me just say to people before they decide whether or not that's something that they want to listen to, it's going to be mostly about forced labor or in indebted labor. So once the gang or like whoever is enslaving you is also holding the threat of death above your head in order for you to remain their slave. Meaning no sex trafficking and no children this week, but it's still very grim and it concerns one particular gang of Polish citizens that enslaved another group of vulnerable Polish citizens, brought them here to the UK and then made them live in these really squalor, really miserable conditions, made them work over 12 hours a day. And then the expose, like what was discovered, that happened during these three years. And then what came after that, how we can spot modern slavery, what can businesses do, what can we personally do. Now another quick thing I would like you to know before going in, I find this story to be extremely close to my heart because it's really close to home. I'm not from Poland myself but have been friends with multiple Polish people and also it's just too close. It's like such a European story, the spirit of the people from the Balkans is like very much similar and the people we're gonna talk about today use that particular thing in order to explain exploit other fellow citizens of their country and that's just scary. It's heavy and it's really close to home so if there are any Polish people listening to it just an extra bit of a trigger warning because you will probably find this story very personal and hurtful in a way. <sighs> but now let's do this! So let's begin with modern slavery, what it is and some current stats before we dive into Operation Fort. Modern slavery is defined as severe exploitation of others for your own personal or commercial gain. And it can come in a variety of forms. People could be just picking your crops, they could be working in your house as nannies, as cleaning staff, or they could be stuck in factories making our clothes. Today in particular we will be focusing on the slaves that were made to pick the crops and then that food and the crops and the onions and the apples and everything on the farms would be sold in supermarkets around the UK. And as I mentioned in particular, we will be talking about forced labor and the debt bondage or bonded labor. And this debt bondage just adds a layer to it because now people are trapped in the poverty to that level that they also have to ask their masters, the people that technically own them, to borrow money and then they're forced to work even more on top of their hours in order to pay off the debt that just keeps piling up. 
just to put things into perspective, based on West Midlands, where today's story will be taking place, in 2017, once they were researching this, they realized there is almost 5,000 potential victims of modern slavery. And when you put that into perspective of the whole of the UK, around 2017, there was about 99,500 potential victims. So now it's probably even more. Today we are going to be talking about a Polish gang that trafficked multiple of their citizens, around 400 victims and counting that the police is just aware of. Between the years of 2012 and 2017, they have trafficked them to West Midlands. Those were the people between the ages of 17 and 60. And then they have been made to live in poor squalor conditions, we'll talk about that as well, forced to do this arduous work in the fields for over 12 hours a day, for sometimes as little as 50p, 50 pence a day. The police have been investigating this particular gang from Birmingham. But it wasn't until a guy named Mariusz appeared in one of the soup kitchens in that area that they really uncovered the depth of it and they really uncovered the main house where these people have been trafficked to. So this guy named Mariusz would appear in these soup kitchens around the area because he was starved. Like, he didn't have much to eat where he was living. And he didn't speak much English either. So he would appear in these soup kitchens and he suddenly realized, like, some people working there were Polish. Which meant that he finally found a possibility of actually talking to somebody and telling them about his situation. So on one occasion when he was in this soup kitchen, he just started talking to the people serving them and he roughly just described the situation and just asked them, like, what do I do? How do I get myself out of there? And this person said, like, I don't know what you should do, but there are people taking care of the victims of trafficking. There is a Salvation Army. So what I would suggest is just go home, pretend like you have none of this information. Whenever you get the opportunity, run to the nearest police station. Like, don't note anything down. This is how you get to this police station. And once you get there, the first thing you tell them is for them to call Salvation Army for you. And on one evening, Mariusz did just that. He ran from the house, ran to the police station, and just told them, call the Salvation Army. I will explain everything. He was petrified. And the police obviously did. They found him a safe house that Salvation Army does provide for the victims of trafficking. And then, one by one, Mariusz told them about everybody in that house. And then they started saving them. So some of these people would again be going to soup kitchens. Then servers in soup kitchens were in on it as well, signaling those people which point or like which area to be in for the police or the Salvation Army to pick them up, to bring them into safe houses the way they have done for Mariusz. And now, before I tell you what happened in the aftermath, were these people charged, did they face any consequences for their actions, let's go in sequence as to how they landed in the house, what was going in there, how did they gain employment, rather, how were they enslaved, for you to understand the conditions they lived in, and for you to understand why they couldn't get out, and why they didn't know what to do in the first place. And to start on that, let's play my favorite game of Imagine This. You probably all watched something like Prison Break or a TV show where somebody comes out of the prison, they come through the door, and then maybe, just maybe, there is a person waiting to pick them up from there. And, you know, it's a family member, it's their friend, they're picking them up, and they're leading them towards freedom. Where there was this guy called Marek Brzezinski, and he was that person for a lot of inmates coming out of the Polish prisons. Except he was not a friend, he was not a family member, he was not a loved one. He was there in front of prisons in his car, just looking who is coming out of the prison and looks disoriented. It looks like, no, there is nobody picking me up. 
after me serving this sentence. And he was spotting the vulnerable victim. Marek would just pull a window down and he would make this person an offer. He would tell them, listen, I can give you a ride, but that ride would need to be to a bus station. From there, we pay you for travel, we pay you for the accommodation. You go to the United Kingdom. You go to the UK, but don't worry about it. You're going to be placed in a house with other people from diaspora, with other Polish people. It's amazing. It's one huge party. We pay you, actually. Not just that you don't pay for accommodation, not just that you don't pay for transport there. We actually pay you on top of that for you to work, like, in a field. You know, you're just picking apples a couple of hours a day. You get 130 pounds every week. Or, you know, you just wait here for somebody to pick you up and maybe drive you somewhere. You don't have a job in Poland, do you? Because you just came out of prison. It doesn't look like anybody else is really here to pick you up and offer you this great life that I can be offering you right now. So, do I pull the window up and just, like, move on with my life? Because that is exactly what Marek would do. They would need to make this decision on the spot. No time to think. No time to process this information at all. No time to question any of it. He's just like, hey, do I pull a window up and just be on my way? Or are you going in? And a lot of people fell for it because they were desperate, because they didn't have any other plans. Prisoners weren't the only ones to fall victims for it, Marek and the rest of the gang. Of course, Marek wasn't the only person working this scam. They weren't only preying on prisoners. This is just one of the instances, but those were the easy targets. Other easy targets were alcoholics on the street. They knew which areas of which city to go to to find the victims they could exploit. Another target group were the homeless people. Again, homeless shelters, just clusters of homeless people in the rough parts of town. The pattern they followed was exactly the same, because the premise was to give these people as little time as possible to make a decision. So these gang members would give you tops up to 30 minutes. There wasn't calling anybody, there wasn't consulting anybody, like calling that one family member that you might have in town. No, you got the offer, it is this amazing, glorified offer, and you had to decide on the spot. I just wanted you to understand that because I have researched myself, like, unemployment rate in Poland isn't really bad. It's, like, 3%. It's technically nothing. For somebody that comes out of a country where unemployment rate is, like, 17% or, like, more. Also, average salary in Poland, from what I looked, is about 900 pounds, the equivalent of that in their currency. So what I really want you to understand is that these are not people that have any other options, because had they had any other options, this gang wouldn't have targeted them at all. Once these people would make this decision and they would say, okay, great, drive me. Don't pull that window up, go ahead and drive me to the bus station. What do I have to lose? Then Marek and any other member of that gang would drive them right to the police station. I have checked the drive by car between Poland and the UK is over 17 hours long. So a drive by bus is probably even double that amount of time. This drive already sounds like hell. Just imagine yourself being crammed on a bus for definitely over 17 hours, because if you think about it, you have to go for customs, they have to check, like, all of their passports and stuff, and you are just sitting there next to your trafficker, and you have no idea what awaits on the other side of it. You think you have nothing to lose, but you have no idea what you just got yourself into. This is already where the lying would begin, because, of course, they would glorify the other side of things, and they would tell them, like, how great they're gonna have it in the UK. But they would also kind of insinuate, hey, listen, actually, they will be checking your documents, and they will okay everything. They'll be like, yeah, everything is great, but you are actually not legally allowed to be in the UK. And that they would obviously be, like, on the bus sweating, like, I'm going to be illegal in this country. Why didn't you tell me that? But then you have no way out. You can't just, like, get out of the bus and escape and scream, like, oh, actually, I'm gonna be illegal. Get me out of this bus. 
And I think for the gang members, this was sort of a test, just to see, you know, can they push it? Do these people actually even know about the immigration in the UK? Would they present a problem to me? And to test their language barrier and to test them as a person, like, are they gonna go and approach somebody else in this bus and ask them? And in most cases, they wouldn't, because they didn't speak any other languages except from Polish, and they just trusted this person. And they trusted that now, not just that they're gonna help them, but also they think that they would be illegal in the country, this person is going to keep their mouth shut and they're going to lead them to this better life. Like, they are dependent on them. Of course, this is just the start of the misspread of information. This was before Brexit. Polish people could freely come into the UK without any visa, without any further documents. Now that they make it to the UK, they would usually make it to West Midlands. So between Birmingham, Smethwick, West Bromwich, like all of those places a lot of people here are familiar with from TV show Benefit Street. So just for context, these would be council houses that landlords would rent out for cheap. They should technically be like single or double occupancy. Definitely not the amount of people that these gang members would put to live in squalor in these houses. But the premise is that they would be forgotten. It's mostly people living off of benefits in these places. And unless somebody calls because a fire has started or because somebody died on the premise and they need the police, Nobody really comes to visit, to make welfare checks and check the conditions of these houses. Because unfortunately, these are the forgotten parts of the society. As soon as they would make it to the door, Justina, the matriarch of the family, would open the door. She would be thrilled that they're having another member of the family. And she would welcome them in, you know, for tea, for coffee. Just like, you know, nice sit down to welcome them into their new life. And this would be done in such a way for any lurking neighbors who are just observing somebody else come in with like one bag or like a suitcase and again with one of the gang members somebody they have never seen before. Not to be nosy, just to think of this as a family member coming in. But as soon as that door would get shut, the situation inside would change and the isolation phase would begin. The isolation phase was really all about the dependence and how can they make these victims that they have just pulled into this house believe that they are completely dependent on the traffickers, that their traffickers are ever seeing, that they are present in all of their locations, in all parts of their life, that if they ever even try to escape or give this information to anybody else, that they will end up in the woods, their bodies will end up in the hole, nobody will ever find them. So think for a second about that. If you were the evil mastermind yourself, how would you ensure that something like this happens? If things like taking their documents away from them or diverting money so that all of the money is pulled into the accounts of traffickers rather than the people that are enslaved, you are on the right trail because this is exactly what they would do. They would take their ID cards, they would register them for national insurance numbers, open bank accounts in the victims' names, using different addresses all around the UK. Depending on the accounts they were opening here, you need a proof of address, so they would forge the address on a thing like utility bill, British Gas, EDF Energy, whatever utility bills they're using, they would just forge the address in order to open yet another bank account. Let me back up there and explain a few things, because if you are from the UK, you're probably already sweating, because you just know where this is going. But if you're from the US, you might be confused. National insurance number, I think the equivalent would be social security number in the US. So if somebody gets a hold of your NI number here in the UK and your bank details, they can technically fake your whole identity and just pull the money into their own accounts. This is why it's super important and why all of the banks and institutions like this do require the proof of your address. This, of course, is something that the victims were not aware about. They didn't know of the importance of the NI number. They didn't know how the British system works in terms of employment, in terms of opening their bank accounts. They just had to trust what their traffic 
traffickers were telling them. But also, if you're anything like me and thinking about like the bigger picture and thinking about long-term effects here, you also start to see the means towards exploitation here. Because if they open one bank account, they might open further. The traffickers might try to max out their bank accounts to take loans, to go into overdraft, to just further indebt the victims. Which means even if these victims do get out of the trafficking situations one day, this debt might be something that will be hovering over their heads. And even those victims that would rebel in a way, or not even just rebel, just be like, okay, cool, so my card should arrive via post tomorrow. They might be understanding a bit more of English. They might just be understanding the concept that there should be a physical card arriving to them. So they'd be like, okay, cool, no, like, so the card will be coming tomorrow. I'll wake up and I'll just, you know, get it from the door. Well, then these traffickers honed in on that and realized, okay, maybe some of them might have more knowledge than we thought, so they would barricade the front door or make sure that only they have the access to, like, the letterbox, so they would sort of make that contraption that would allow them to, like, have a key, and only they would have the access to any post that would be coming in the name of their victims. Now that they would have full control over their finances and their identity, unfortunately, they would encourage other tactics between other people in this house in order to enforce isolation. Such as, they would ask some people that were there for a while, hey, listen, they wouldn't ask, they would demand, I'm using the wrong term here, they would demand for other members to spy on the newbies. They would impose a curfew. And all of those things that they would impose, they could impose because of the back of what they introduced, which was misinformation, which was the fact that all of them are actually illegal in the country. So they had to listen to them. Otherwise, they're going to go and snitch on them to the authorities. And then even worse conditions await on them. Because they haven't seen the state of British prisons. You should be grateful you're living in a luxury. The British prisons, you're going to have it rough there. Can't even speak English. All of this would just be enhanced and repeated. And they constantly felt watched and constantly felt like this internal pressure, like they have no control over a single part of their life. Before moving on to talk about the job and the conditions they experienced there, let's just briefly focus on the houses that they lived in, because this is some of the most disgusting pictures I have seen on the internet. You know how here in the UK, when you look for a house on, like, right move or spare room or whatever, like, if you were looking to rent ever, you probably encountered some pictures of, like, your nightmares, where you're like, wow, this is going for this rent insane. Nothing would ever match what you would see in these images. Sometimes they would just sleep on the mattress that was probably just also picked from the streets. They would have, like, one blanket covering them. It would be multiple people per room. It would be completely disgusting, really dirty environment. There is a picture of this toilet online. I wouldn't actually be surprised if this is, like, removed from a video by YouTube for, like, community guidelines. Just this toilet picture. Because the toilet, just like the rest of the house, was all leaking and moldy and it was flooded on this occasion. And the way that they dealt with the flood was to put blanket around it to soak up the water. Because, of course, if they ring up the landlord, if they ring up the plumber and they see the rest of the conditions, somebody's gonna report their ass. Of course, just from the looks of that toilet, you can imagine that these people would either have just cold water to shower with, and a lot of times there wouldn't be no heating, no cold water either, so they would have to go to the nearby canals to actually have a wash and just wash themselves and wash their hair. But more than the conditions, this house was just another form of control. Everybody that gave interviews afterwards, I think it was done for a panorama series for BBC. So they made like a series on everything. They included interviews of the victims. They all said that the house was insanely loud at all times. On top of that, you felt like you were spied on because you were, whether it was just by a visiting gang member, whether it was by the matriarchs of the house, or whether it was just by people living in your own room that you are not sure if you can trust or not, because maybe they have a different bond to the trafficker than you do. But another important thing when thinking about how they use these properties in order to control their victims is that sometimes they would just move them. Middle of the night, disorientated, they would just wake you up and they'd be like, 
moving moving time come on i'm moving you to another location and they would do this because the victims would be disoriented they would be and they most vulnerable like middle of the night and they would just move them to another property put them to like another mattress another bed in order for them to even if they remember the previous address now have no clue where they are how far they are from it so if they do escape that they can't actually tell the police where they're even coming from like what house what location where is this even taking place so that they are in the clear we spoke about the recruiting phase we spoke about how they got there the house the isolation phase so now let's talk about the job this gainful employment that they have been promised as you could imagine this was just another way for the traffickers to fully exploit their control over these victims because even when it comes to jobs they would wake these people up bright and early around four or five in the morning they would put them either in a bus or in a car or in a van and they would drive them about 90 minutes to the field to the farm where they would be working and then on these farms they would be working around 12 hours a day so so in the evening, let's say around 7 p.m., the gang members, the traffickers would come again, would pick these people up, and then again, 90 minutes journey home. Of course, they would be spread out so that they don't work all at the same place and, you know, then talk between each other and plan escape. Some of them would be working at, like, recycling factories, others at turkey gutting farms, the others, like, picking apples, picking onions that would go into supermarkets. So they would all be spread out into different places. And we'll speak about that in a second because, of course, for the gang to be able to do this, they had to have their own in recruitment agencies as well. But what I want to drive home here briefly is how much they were getting paid for these jobs. Here in the UK, the living wage is around 9.50 per hour. So on a weekly basis, that's around 380 pounds. They were promised 130 pounds, if you remember from the beginning. What they were actually getting from these traffickers was around 20 pounds a week. Sometimes they'd get around 35. Mario said the most he got in one week with 75 pounds. If you think about it, you can't live off 20 pounds even on a daily basis because they weren't fed by these gangs either. So what this would allow for is just further exploitation and further going in debt with their traffickers. Because if they asked for more food, if they asked for a drink, if they wanted cigarettes, God forbid, anything else that they couldn't buy because they just didn't get paid enough, well then the gang members would just add that to their tab of their debt. The exact same way that they held their expenses for their travel and the cost of getting them there and the cost of like forging the documents in order to get them there illegally. What these low wages would then allow for even before these people discovered soup kitchens and they just wanted to have enough food for survival because they were working 12 hours a day, they weren't even getting fed at all and lived in just disgusting freaking conditions. Well, they would then go to the traffic and be like, actually, like, can I have some food? And the traffickers would be like, sure, that would cost X amount of pounds. And they would just invent however much money. So they had to even establish the form of loans with their traffickers, just putting them further in debt or ensuring that these traffickers pay them even less next week in order to overcompensate for a food or a drink that they have had a week before. When it comes to drinks, talking about alcohol here, Mario said the traffickers just use this as another means to an end. They would convince their victims to have a drink, but then that would be added to their debt or their loan. But they knew what they were doing. They were using alcohol as the means to make these victims even more compliant. As if these victims working 12 hours a day and commuting to their work for 3 hours a day just wasn't enough. Also, during the weekends, in order to keep them occupied, in order to keep them disorientated, they would give them other maintenance jobs, like on the properties. So if toilet needed fixing or cleaning of the property, that would also fall onto the slaves that just worked around the clock, completely disoriented, not even knowing where they are or how to even get themselves out of that situation. 
how were they able to do this? You might be wondering, and I'm going to tell you, because let me tell you about this bitch. Uh, this bitch rallies me right up. Okay, there's some people of this gang. All of them are evil. Don't get me wrong. All of them are evil, but some of them are next level. And this is not going to end in like a happy ending where we are all happy with the sentences that they have gotten. No, it's just for the rage. So let me tell you about this bitch. Her name was Juliana Chudakovic. I'm sorry, I'm not sure in Poland do you pronounce J as Y like in my name. It's not Maja, it's Maya. So I'm not sure if it's Juliana or Juliana. But anyways, she was in a relationship with the guy that would transport people to the UK. Remember Marek? Marek? Yeah. Marek Chovaniek. I think that's his last name. Well, Juliana got herself a job in a recruitment agency. So she was there inside mall. And this job allowed her so many things that this is scary on a completely different level if all of the recruitment agencies give this much power to their employees. So she started working for this recruitment agency called eResponse when she was only 19 years of age and all of her colleagues were impressed with her. And they were impressed with her because she was their highest performer. She would sometimes be onboarding 20 workers at a time. They were like, wow. And all of her co-workers would be there like, wow, how is she doing that? I'll tell you how she was doing that. She was rejecting the actual genuine qualified candidate in order to make space and recruit only the trafficked victims. Sometimes, sometimes, she would recruit that many people at the same time that she would use her colleagues' logins in order to onboard them, like under their accounts. There was just no history. There was no login history at this place. There was no history of like who did what last because they would have realized not only did she use login details, but all of her colleagues, which again, how did she know all of these details? But whenever Marek would signal her, she would also log into the trafficked members' profiles and would change their bank details so it would go to Marek directly or another gang member. If a dress needed changing to match that bank account, again, Juliana would be your girl. She would just log in and change everything so that everything matches, so that she is not in trouble, but that all of the money is going into the gang members' bank accounts. She would do this in such a way where she would be completing the online forms that the victims were supposed to complete. Then she would go to Marek and the other gang members, and she would tell them, this is how you force them to behave in order not to be detected once they actually get this job and once they go to this workplace. And of course, she didn't do this for free. She negotiated with a gang and got a hundred pounds per each person that she managed to successfully place into her workplace. And of course, that money, I don't have to tell you, was not coming from the gang member's account. It was coming from these victims' wages. She was also in charge of doing audits, obviously, because she would bring this many people. So she would often go to these factories, to these farms where the victims would be employed. So yet again, just another person who was ever seeing, who was monitoring them on the location, but even more importantly, monitoring their accounts and being in complete control of them. And I thought I should read you out this quote because we will talk about the level of control of these people had and how to spot this in a workplace. This is a quote from one of Juliana's co-workers. She was popular, shy, and softly spoken. Looking back, the amount of control she had seems sinister now, but nobody realized this at the time. Yeah, maybe somebody should have clocked. Haven't we all worked with a psychopath that just managed to brown nose their manager and then they have had like all of the logging details and all of the control and you were all just watching me like, yeah, they're not doing just legal stuff, are they? They're just, they're, they're going to scam this company and the company just allows for it to happen. Who gave this bitch too much control? It's always the psychopaths. It's never like a decent person because they wouldn't have wanted it in the first place. And because of this insane power that Juliana had, she also could pick up if any of these places of work were to get suspicious 
or sometimes when she was to change any of these details she would the same way that they would change houses they would just pick them up in the middle of the night and move their houses to keep them disoriented and to keep them dependent they would do the exact same thing when it comes to their employment they would just pull them out of the employment and be like okay from tomorrow you work in this factory you work on this farm so anytime a place of employment would ask for a confirmation of something, would ask for approval for address, or would just get a bit suspicious and would want to talk to them more, well, Giuliano was there to prevent that from happening. Of course, even after hearing the horrific story that I just told you, there will probably be some people that would be inclined to post comments like, well, why didn't they just run? Why didn't they just go to the police? Why couldn't they trust anybody else in the house? Why didn't they hatch an escape plan? And the reason is that the gang wasn't a stranger to threats, and if the threats wouldn't be enough, they would resort to physical abuse as well. Whether it would be just threats or whether it would be actual physical abuse, they would do it in front of everybody else in the house. It's kind of like killing two birds with one stone. Why would you waste time individually threatening somebody when you can spread enough fear by you beating somebody in front of everybody else or threatening them by saying, well, we actually have all of your documents and they have your Polish address. And remember how we have those Polish affiliates that are bringing us new people here every week? Well, I'm a phone call away from ringing them up now and sending them to kill your whole family. So you might want to respect us and you might actually want to listen to what we are telling you and not complain. That's the big part. It was all done with an intention to use these tactics to control the wider group of people. Mariusz himself was hurt. They beat him up. They broke his ribs when he complained about the conditions and he said for some time he actually slept with a knife under his mattress in order to avoid this from happening again. He also said he remembered one other guy and this is also just horrific and just shows you like the fear that everybody lived in because again in front of everybody else this guy has been stripped naked covered in this chemical iodine and threatened that if he complains again that they are going to remove his kidneys. Mariusz also remembered other instances where they treated these victims like garbage, like the one where they took a couple of men outside into the woods and asked them to dig their own graves, just psychologically messing with them. Or when they would actually beat them up to the point that these people couldn't get up and work the next day, like they broke one man's arm and then just ejected him from the lodging, just took him out on the street. They have done that because that man was of no further use to them. He has to go to work in order for them to pay him, in order for these gang members to pull the money into their own bank accounts and profit off of them. And that is where we have left this story at the beginning, when Mariusz went to the soup kitchen, then went to the Salvation Army and to the police. The police investigation uncovered that the gang actually altogether accumulated about 2.46 million just by opening their accounts, going into overdraft, taking their benefits, and taking most of their wages. So now that the police managed to extract a large number of those people, they actually managed to convince about 61 of them to be witnesses in trial and to just present, talk about the conditions they have lived in, give evidence as to the names of the gang members, where they worked, how they lived in squalor, the conditions they lived in, how they were forcing them to withdraw money, like everything we spoke about today. They had such a huge heap of evidence that they actually had to split the trials in two. And on 22nd of February 2019, finally, all of these gang members have been found guilty. In total, eight of them will receive their sentences in June 2019. Our boy Marek was jailed for 11 years for trafficking and conspiracy to require another to perform forced labor and money laundering. Justina, who was the matriarch of the family, was given five and a half years. Marek, another Marek Brzezinski, that was the guy that was recruiting the workers. He was jailed for nine years. Natalia Zmuda, who was another recruitment consultant, she was given four and a half years. 
Juliana, the evil recruitment bitch we spoke about a lot, was given five and a half years. But obviously, when these victims spoke up, they didn't just speak about only the gang members. They said, no, 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 they were victims that you would think were just victims, but they were actually spies for the gang. So yes, they were once victims, but then they have completely just turned against all of us. So one such guy called Wojciech was described as a one-time victim, but then his reason to become a spy, and he was jailed for six and a half years. And then there was another man called Jan Sadowski, and he was given three years. Funny how they gave technically a snitch or a spy more years than they gave to some of them. So collectively, I think somebody has done the math, and they have all been given about 55 years altogether. Some of them will be free as soon as next year or the year after. Which is just ridiculous, because you know when these people reach the streets, they're not going to just go, what, do minimum wage job? Man, I mean, they probably will need to at some point, but they won't resort to committing to that long term. When once they used to earn the amount doctors and surgeons earn, this is not going to be enough for them. At the sentencing, the judge also made sure to impose the Slavery and Trafficking Prevention Order, or STPO. And this is to last for nine years after they're released from prison. This is like some new civil order that the government introduced where they can track their activities and if anything sort of like is a red flag, it pops up on the system so that they're in some way controlled. But again, if these people were this skilled to go undetected for so long, I'm just scared that this might repeat itself. The way it's getting repeated and going undetected in 100,000 other cases. But these were not the only people to face justice, because if you're anything like me, you were like, uh, what about the landlord, Maya? What about the person that allowed them to live in these squalor conditions that you have showed us on the screen? This is disgusting. The landlord, let's name shame him, Kashmir Singh Bini. Please look at his fuckboy face. Just tell me you don't want to punch him. It's a very particular face. So if you live in West Midlands, if you live around this area, please, please remember his face because... Let me tell you, you don't want this guy as a landlord. He rented out at least three of the locations used by the gang and also allowed for the multiple occupancy, even though these houses were registered to have single tenants, like one tenant, not like 20 in them. He only got fined, so he was ordered to pay £14,000 in court costs, and he also got a five-year order binding him by different conditions, including that he can't accept cash payments from tenants and must provide local authorities with tenancy agreements with occupants' details, like signed and actually have that money then go into his bank account so that that can be tracked. But yeah, I don't think from anything I've read that this guy served a day in prison. Luckily, a lot of victims managed to use the help of the Salvation Army, managed to use the help of the police, the resources that they were offered to get out of these debts and to actually continue to live in the UK, to get the bailiffs off their backs and learn about everything, the importance of the NI number, get their actual bank accounts in order, stop from going into overdraft and get employment and earn enough to support themselves and their whole family. As for our protagonist, Marius, well, I think I forgot to tell you something, just because I didn't want you to base, like, opinions on Marius this way. But Marius was in some trouble with the police in Poland. I'm not really sure on what charges. So once they actually uncovered this story and the police found his documents on the location, well, then the Polish police issued the warrant for his arrest. But I think the British police kind of liaised with them, explained the situation. So Marius only served like a year in prison in Poland. And he said, it's fine. I've been through worse. Which honestly you could believe, man. Even prisons look like decent accommodation compared to what these people have been living in. So that's it on the story of the Operation Ford and the story of the Polish gang. But now let's discuss a couple of things, like how could have this been spotted by different organizations, by banks, by employers. And finally, how it can be spotted by us, because I can only personally affect any single one of you watching this video. I can't affect a company, an establishment like Sainsbury's or off-license. And that's in particular what we're going to talk about now. So, how were the employers supposed to pick up on this? 
So something that is done regularly, for example, in my company, but I'm not sure that it's done in other places. So right now I work for customer service, as you lot know, because I complain about it and I want to get out of it. Doesn't matter, personal story. But I work self-employed, like employed by this agency, and they always check up, like every couple of months, they're still like, hey, can we check up on the address again? Can you confirm the address for us? And can you confirm your bank details just so we know it's you, you know, it's under your name. The same applies to contact numbers. You know, when you have to give next of kin or like emergency contact information, a lot of them would give the exact same one. And that just was never flagged up by the system. So even just confirming that the bank account is under the name of the actual person and that they live under the same address or if they have moved that they have another legitimate proof of address to back that up is crucial. It's essential. Like all of these employers should have been checking on that. Obviously, this has like trickled down from the employment agency that Juliana and Natalia were controlling, but their managers should have been doing audits on them. Like, sorry, what do you mean you have the login details of all of your colleagues and you're logging in as everybody? Nobody's logging in, like your input history on there. And nobody's logging in these discrepancies because these discrepancies in terms of bank details, national insurance numbers and addresses should have been picked up by the agency because these two women we're just willy-nilly changing them up as it pleases them. The commonality between everything I'm going to talk about in this part is really paying attention to the appearance first, because that's the first thing you can notice. Like, if somebody is just exhausted, looks shattered all the time, looks disheveled, in really bad conditions, these victims a lot of times didn't have water inside the house, so they would bathe in canals. Like, they didn't smell great, they didn't look great, they just looked tired. Like, how is nobody picking up on this when somebody is working at your field, at your farm, for five days a week. Again, the gangs were to blame for this because they would just pull these people out of these contracts as and when they suspected that they might be picking up on something. So this is, again, to be blamed on the gangs. But still, even if it is just for five days, we gotta start paying attention on how people appear and why do they appear in such a way and why are they coming that exhausted. One of these agencies actually had a system of checking when multiple workers were paid into the same bank account, but these checks were carried out only on a weekly basis, so this gang was able to swap the victims in and out at random patterns and just avoid detection. And when it comes to banks, they could have picked up on a couple of things. First of all, that sometimes it would be the same gang member that would act as the interpreter for many of these individuals, bringing them into these banks and becoming very familiar with how they worked, with their CCTV, with when and where to go to ATM. But also these patterns could have exactly because of that reason been spotted. So like bank tellers should have been aware, hey, we have seen this guy with like 10 different people. Why is he helping all of these people open these accounts. Or, hey, this guy is always literally right next to the person when they're withdrawing the money from their ATM machines. Why is that? And something somebody could have definitely picked up on even before this investigation is the amount of calls that Department for Work and Pensions was receiving from the same number. So they got about like 70 calls from the exact same number. Because again, these people are not geniuses. That's the reason why I'm so concerned it's going undetected, because none of these people is particularly smart. Some of them are cunning, some of them are more cunning than the others, but a lot of them just make really basic mistakes. So every time these people would be calling to make applications for benefits, they would be calling from the exact same number, exact same house, just giving different address and giving different names. Now let's talk about the actual businesses. So not the workforce, not their workplace and where they were working, but more like where that food was going to. Because that is truly what modern slavery is all about, isn't it? When you're buying something from a shop that costs ridiculously cheap, you should probably know that the person that was making that shirt, that was picking that fruit, has not been paid fairly at all. 
So after the operation, Ford brought these people to justice. Anti-slavery commissioner Dame Sarah Thornton actually sent correspondence to 15 retailers expressing her concerns and asking what measures these companies are taking and for them to basically send them any policies, anything, how it is represented, how it is shown to the public. So she sent emails to Sainsbury's, Tesco, Aldi, Asda, Waitrose, like all of these supermarkets that you can think of. And you're hearing this now and you're like, are those like the biggest supermarkets in the country? Of course they're going to have something anti-slavery. Of course they're going to have a bunch of happy people. They're going to have these policies available online. They're going to be ready to respond to the commissioner. And why are they going to have to do that? Because they have the resources. Because by the Modern Slavery Act that was issued in 2015, only the businesses with a turnover of 36 million or more are legally required to publish a statement on how they're tackling modern slavery across the operations and in supply chains. So what I read from that is that smaller businesses aren't. They don't have to do any of this. So if somebody's picking up potatoes, picking up onions, loading up apples into the trucks for 50p a day for that fruit or vegetable to end up in a smaller market, Nobody will know about that because that smaller market, that off-license, will not have such a policy. They won't have a website, let alone such policy somewhere published online. Just some stats for you to like further represent the scope of this issue. Less than a fifth, 19% actually, of the UK agricultural companies currently comply with the Modern Slavery Act. With only 50% publishing a statement, 38% of which actually complied to the law. So not even all of the statements complied to the law that was supposed to be in place. And even when they do comply, it just seems like it is either super ambiguous and nobody still knows how you should actually comply and what these policies should entail because 7 out of 10 FTSE 100 companies so financial time stock exchange companies are failing to report sufficient measures to comply with the Modern Slavery Act and they're scoring below 40% when judged on the risk assessments surrounding anti-slavery, due diligence and training or any policies involved. And one important thing, the act obviously allows the government to impose sanctions to all of these companies, but to date it has never been done despite them promising that they will name and shame over 17,000 organizations. So I can sit here and be enraged and scream at banks, at businesses, and why they're not changing anything, why they're not doing the bare minimum of due diligence. But instead, I'm going to give us some tips, me included here, because obviously I researched this so that I can know myself, in order how we can spot this if we ever face somebody that you might be suspicious but you are not sure and what to do in those instances. Taking into consideration everything we spoke about today, a lot of these victims will look unkempt. They will either have BO or will look disheveled, will look very much shattered and will usually be accompanied by somebody else. That is an important part. So if you're ever on a bus or somewhere and it just looks like somebody is controlled by the other person, like that person is paying for their travel, is pulling out the oyster, pulling out the cars, while the other person doesn't even instinctively go to the bag to take the documents, or you can just see that they don't have any documents on them at all, and it just looks like that other person is controlling them completely. Also, if they look like they have been physically harmed, they're struggling to move or they have any bruises and they just look like a submissive person while this other person is speaking on their behalf. So this can again be in different kind of situations, whether it is travel, whether it is banks, whether it is employment agencies, whether it is workplace. When speaking about workplace as well, just try to pick up on if somebody doesn't speak like at all, if they are just withdrawn but you can spot like other things so it's not just like their personality if they are getting picked up and dropped off constantly by somebody this would be great like to to just pay attention to even in cases of 
domestic violence, like not even trafficking. Like this is something we should actually be attentive to. Somebody's just being dropped off and you look at them and they seem like they have been unkempt, they haven't showered, like they have bruises all over. Most definitely something is going on that should be reported to the police. Of course, if somebody is actually talking to you, try to pick up on certain patterns like do they have their own documents? Do they know their own address? Do they know the importance of things like an I number paying taxes? And also be really attentive to here in those situations where you're picking up red flags. If somebody is mentioning anything to do with that, like, hey, I'm actually only getting 20 pounds, when you know, like for the job you are doing, you are getting, I don't know, 380 pounds a week. Or if they're mentioning something that doesn't meet like the living standard in the UK. Actually, once I get paid, this person takes all of my money and keeps it away from me, or I only get paid 20 pounds a week, or I need to ask them for money and I'm building out debt and like I have these loans formed with this person. And something I would personally do is ask these particular questions like can you confirm your address for me? You know, just like do it subtly. Like can you confirm where you live for me? You know, I would like to come visit, like hang out after work and then see how they react because then you can spot like some red flags immediately. Or again, in order for nobody to get spooked, to just have like a normal conversation that is easy to understand because there would be some language barrier there as well. But you know, when you're having like group conversations at work, maybe start talking about holidays and where they have went for, you know, their holiday. Like what do they do on their days off? Something that can't be misconstrued if somebody else is listening in. Make sure you listen to pick up any answers like somebody might have taken my documents, I might not be having days off at all, or me and 20 other people I live in with have never been on holidays. We don't have enough money for anything. Unfortunately, because of the conditions, because of the kind of work that these people are doing, you might never actually have the option to even strike up the conversation. So that's why it is important to pick up on any of these external flags in any circumstance and in any situation and just to be vigilant. And I'm going to put the number on the screen. And also in the description box, I'm going to put the links for Hope for Justice and for the Salvation Army. They have helplines that are available 24-7. So if you do witness anything that you suspect might be related to any forced labor or any other form of modern slavery, just call them. Just call them and just point this out to them. They will know what to do and they will tell you, okay, you might be exaggerating, it might be this, or they're going to be like, where have you seen them? Let's dispatch somebody to do a welfare check. Because at least then you will know something is going to be done about this. And just imagine if you actually do spot a red flag, you might save other people's lives. Had anybody conducted a welfare check in this situation, they would have saved like all of those people at one of these locations. And then it's like a domino effect because saving all of those people at one of the locations would then lead to people discovering other houses, would then lead to people discovering of this landlord, would lead to people getting names of the gang members from the victims, which would have meant that something like this would not have lasted for as long as it did. But that is the story of the day. Sometimes they just, they just don't end well, do they? And they are just there for us to actually face a reality check and to know that this is happening. This is the reality for so many people. So the more we speak about it, the more we hold people accountable for things, the more change we can bring on this front. But that's it from me. I'm going to leave you some weird outtakes. I don't want to call them funny or hilarious because they were weird as hell today. And I will see you, I think, in a few days. I think you have a god bed coming this Wednesday, if I'm not mistaken. So make sure you have that bell on. You like this video if you like this type of content, if you like this expose talking about things other YouTubers might not. And you subscribe to the channel. And I will see you in a couple of days. And now, goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. You need an outro. You need like the car that plays the music. Get up. Get up. Get, get up. The car that plays the music. That's that's what you call it? You mean the end credit? You mean the cast of all of the alter egos that were in this room? Yeah, get up. Get up. I'm eating chocolate. I have chocolate.
going to run my mouth because nobody will see it as chocolate. Yeah, people will see it as eating ass. Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> nobody will figure that out. Your hair looks like clean today. I swear I wash my hair more than once a week. It's like that sounds like that sounds like somebody's being caught in a lie. No, my what the fuck? Imagine. God, that would be greasy. You know how other true crime people are like into beauty? So what? Greasy hair, yeah? You know like when they stick it to their head and then like they tie it up? People would know the difference between grease and gel. Would you? Would you know the difference between grease and gel? <laughs> well, you wouldn't. Because you ain't into this beauty shit. But maybe they would. Yes, that, that is who I'm asking the question. You sometimes talk like there's 20 people in the room. <laughs> they might be confused. I'm asking the question to you. I'm trying to get the sound to be better, you know, without getting like that pole that will be like right above my head. But I think I will eventually need to get the pole to be right above my head. But look at this! You're missing out on the pizza! It's a pizza! It's a pizza slice! You're a child. First world problems. You're literally talking about slavery. And you're like, oh my god, you guys are missing out. Shut the fuck up. How did you have outtakes, actually? Does anybody know on Canon cameras? I think this is 60D. Uh, how do you make sure that it doesn't, like, time out on you? Like, I have tried. I have set up everything that there is in functions. And still, it just switches off on me around 11, 12 minutes in. Which is also really random. Like, why 11, 12 minutes? You gotta question everything. So yeah, hit me up in the comments if anybody knows that. What was that? Was that English? I don't think that was English. I don't think that was English. Hit me up in the comments if anybody knows the answer to my questions. Questions? Questions is not an English word. Oh my god, I can't speak today. Can you? Jesus! Jesus, I'm gonna help you with the language. You need to go to the Locopedo or whatever. The what? The Locopedo. <laughs> start from start from day one, my start from day one. A B C D E F G. It's not entire pronounced letters. <laughs> Somebody save me from a sale. That should be a song. This probably is. It probably is. It's twenty twenty one. There must be a song that's called "Save Me From Myself." Wait, Spotify. <laughs> this is a story about slavery, my Save me from myself. Yep, Christina Aguilera has a song, Save Me From Myself. Harry J, whoever, yeah, there is, there is. Whoever, the shade. You can't put shade onto people.